Welcome back. We now have our Unmasking the Beast of Revelation 13 and 17, Discovering Untold Truths to Prepare for What's Coming Next. Magazines are now out. If you have a U.S. postal address, you can order those, and we will send those at no cost to a U.S. postal address. We will have it available as a digital file that if you're not in the U.S., you'll be able to read it online. Uh, so uh, if you've said, I've been to 20 different Adventist or other uh, Daniel Revelation seminars, I don't need to hear that again, you will be surprised when you read this because it's going to open your mind to... Uh, multiple new perspectives and insights that we've never presented organizationally before. I think you'll find it very helpful. So our first question was, says, uh, in Lesson 8, you say, so it ultimately doesn't matter on which day you go to church on. I, uh, this, they're quoting me. I make this very clear. It doesn't matter what, uh, it matters what law you operate upon and how you treat others. That's the end of it. it another, another quote of me. It really doesn't matter which day you go to church on, in my view, as long as you're actually living God's law, unquote. So, uh, I think I know where you're coming from, but I have a sister-in-law in her 70s who just recently started watching the class. She, uh, when she heard this, she wrote me saying, please tell me I heard him wrong. Would you consider having the Come and Reason class uh, on Sunday mornings instead of Sabbath mornings? So I appreciate this question so much, uh, it, again, uh, because it asks the question, what law lens are we understanding Sabbath through? What law lens? You know, the, 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 the commandments say to remember the Sabbath day. First off, did I say anything about which, that the Sabbath is not Friday to Saturday sunset? Did I say anything about that? No, it was about what we do on Sabbath, not what day is Sabbath. It's what we do on Sabbath. And so what does, what does the Bible say? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it you should attend church every week. Does it actually say that? What church did Abraham go to every week? He was the father of the faithful. He couldn't have been faithful if he wasn't attending church, could he? This is my point. The Bible says thou shalt not do any work. And notice how God left it. Did he even define what work is? He didn't even define it. And that's why when the disciples pulled some heads of grain, because they were hungry on Sabbath, they got accused of the imperial law adherence of working and harvesting on Sabbath. And this is what happens when we approach God's law through the human concept of behavior and deeds, we want to make it about the deeds and make sure we get the right list and keep it in the right way because it's all about our performance. And my point was the Sabbath is actually a sign. It was a gift to human beings for our well-being, and it's a sign that God is the one that makes us holy. And the remembering aspect isn't remember it factually. It is the, the way the Hebrew uh, um Verbiage is, it's an active presence, ongoing awareness of. Keep it in mind. Remember the Sabbath all week long in the way you live. And I've said this before about the holiness of the Sabbath. If we were to trick the world into making Sabbath the biggest party day of the week, and I know that's not happened, has it? Or has it? And so the biggest parties happen on Friday night and Saturday. The most uh, wild living and corrupt activities if we do that, have we made the Sabbath less holy by, by our conduct? If we come to church every week and live virtuously and, and righteously on the Sabbath, are we making it more holy? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's holy. There's nothing you do to make it more holy or less holy. So keeping it holy or really keeping who holy or what holy? Yourselves holy. 
And can a person keep themselves holy one day in seven? This is the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a sign that I am the one who sanctifies you or makes you holy. And all week long, we're to remember the principles of what the Sabbath is created to remind us of. The Sabbath is a sign. That flag, the U.S. flag, is a symbol or a sign of the U.S. government. The flag is not the government. The Sabbath is not the government. It's a sign. But when you wave the flag, okay, the U.S. flag can have meaning to people who appreciates what it truly stands for, of liberty and justice for all. If you're a, a POW of a foreign power and you see somebody coming waving the U.S. flag, what does it do for you? It inspires you. The Sabbath is to inspire us with the principles of God's kingdom, which he presented in truth, in love, and then rested from exercising power so no coercive pressure is brought, giving freedom to his beings to decide for themselves. Truth, love, and freedom. So we remember all week the principles of the Sabbath. We live them out in how we treat others. This is never a question about which day is the Sabbath. It's, uh, the, I don't even know any Sunday-keeping folks that really question that. And I actually know of some that keep the Sabbath from sunset Friday to sunset Sabbath by putting away all the things of the world, going, usually doing something with their family out in nature on Sabbath, and go to church every week on Sunday. And I know many people who keep the seventh day as their uh, attending worship day, attending church services day. And I've heard of some that actually wanted Christ off the cross by sunset, so they could be sure to be home for worship services in time. My point is simply, it's not about the rules, and it's not about the activities, it is about the principles of the Sabbath that God has established his, his, his reality to operate upon, that those who love him practice in their lives all week, they remember, they remember, they live in a state of remembrance of what the Sabbath is for, and they celebrate it each week as it comes around. All right, uh, question in our uh, website. Do uh, you have any insights as to why atheists and those who have uh, bought into the mainstream COVID narrative always respond to questions with anger? For example, mass discussions always seem hostile or when trying to discuss God with an atheist. Um, this is not just atheists and people who bought into the narrative. This, this, what you're describing is a dynamic for anybody who holds a position that is not actually based on truth, but that false position gives them a sense of safety and security. It makes them feel safe. So you will see the same thing with Christians who hold to the penal legal concept of the payment being made to the, to the, to the angry God to pay for their sin and they're declared righteous even though they're not or all their sins are paid and they were saved years ago and once saved they're always saved. If you question any of that, 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 that theological legal construct gives them a sense of safety. If you begin to question it, what happens is their sense of safety is undermined and that causes anger when they're, because they feel they're being threatened on a gut and instinctual level. And the same thing is happening here. The agnostic has a certain worldview. It makes them feel safe. If you question it, it'll make them either feel threatened or stupid. And nobody wants to be stupid. And so they, they get angry and irritable. Same thing with the COVID. Nobody wants to get manipulated. People that invested in Bernie Madoff's scheme when they were first told by friends before it was exposed, I think you made a bad investment there. No, no, no. Uh-uh. No, they, they did not want to hear the truth. They didn't want to believe they lost their money. They, they, they were invested in, in what they did. Their judgment could not be uh, taken advantage of. They're good people. And what happens is when, uh, this, and I think Mark Twain famously said it, it's easier to fool somebody than to convince them they've been fooled. 
And that's part of the process here. Uh, because it's not just the, uh, the truth, it's what the truth, what the lie has done for them. And when you remove that, it has multiple layers, personal insecurity and fear, uh, a, 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 an assault against their ego and their self-image. So many doctors who have bought into the false narrative are extremely resistant to the truth about the damage that has been caused by these experimental injections. Why are they resistant? Because they've taken it themselves and they don't want to believe they've harmed themselves. They've given it to their own families and they don't want to believe they've harmed their families. And they have a concept of themselves as being a benevolent, good provider of care and they don't want to believe they've harmed their patients. So the evidence that, that would show that this is actually harmful, they're extremely resistant to. And they get angry if you try to suggest anything. So that's why, that's what's going on. Okay, this thing keeps jumping around on me. Okay. What uh, do you say to someone who asks why things that happen in the Bible don't happen today? Like the Jonah and the whale, the, the uh, Samson's strength, a Red Sea parting, etc.? So a couple of reasons. One, the Bible specifically focused on a, uh, on a story arc about the plan of salvation, and Satan was actively working to stop it, and God was constantly working to intervene to keep the uh, plan of salvation and the Messiah coming open. So there was an active uh, spiritual warfare going on for the purpose of bringing Jesus as our Savior, and we see lots of miracles happening in that, in that setting. Uh, and they get recorded there because the, the inspired spotlight is on that story arc. Uh, there are miracles that happen in this world. We do not have an inspired um, focus and lens keeping record and track uh, circulating that record around the world for all us to read. So one reason is that the miracles that have happened after the biblical record don't necessarily get recorded and, and promulgated in the same way. That, that's one reason. Uh, the other reason is that once Jesus came, many of the things God needed to do in order to keep open the avenue of Messiah are no longer necessary. Christ has achieved the victory at the cross and has provided what's necessary for the salvation of man. And Satan cannot stop it now. But prior to the cross, if he could uh, get all human hearts to harden against Christ, then he could prevent the Messiah from being born. And that's almost happened at the flood. And so that, that's why, two reasons. Uh, when Christ returns and we reign with him a thousand years, who will Satan be deceiving? In Revelation chapter 20, when it says he'll be loosed again uh, to deceive the people. Won't everyone already have their minds being made up uh, on who they want to serve. So what would be the purpose of him being loosed? So the, the my understanding of the thousand years, it happens at the second coming of Christ, all the righteous um, dead are raised to life, and the righteous living are transported to heaven with Jesus, and they go back a thousand years. All the wicked that were dead remain dead, and all the wicked living are put into that first death sleep state, and Satan and his angels are left here alone on the earth for a thousand years. So he has no persons to tempt or lead astray or to or to marshal to do anything. So he's left to his life. At the end of the thousand years, Christ returns with the New Jerusalem, the angels, and all the saints, and it comes down on earth, and the wicked dead are raised to life. And that's why Satan is loose, because he now has people to deceive. And he deceives them by claiming that he is the rightful um, ruler and that the one inside the city has usurped his authority and that we are more outside the city than inside the city. And if we salt the city, then we can actually take what's rightfully mine. And so this is him being loosed again. Why would God raise them if they're already completely settled and lost? It, it's because God, the way God's government works is a, is a system of liberty. In, in, in human history, there are many people God put into the sleep death. You might call it, put them in cryogenic storage, put them in timeout, froze them in time, shut them down, pulled the plug, 
uh, on their life, whatever you want to call it, but they were suspended in time. They were going along, boom, and then nothing, but they're sleeping. They're not gone. And when they wake up, they come out of the grave with the same current of thoughts they went into the grave, and thus they finish their life by their own free will choices. God does not terminate the life of any of these people. And, and now when they come up out of the grave, the people died in the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, firstborn of uh, Egypt, and so forth and so on through history. When they come out of the grave, they have the new Jerusalem on earth. And the, 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 it's described in inspiration that the gates of the new Jerusalem are open. They're open. And what happens? How many of these wicked with the gates of the new Jerusalem open come into the city and repent and give their heart to the Lord? None come in. And this is a part of the lesson that the righteous need to see, that not one person is kept out of salvation by the power of God. He would be willing for them to come in. He would love it for them to come in, but they won't because they're so settled into the lie and they're so corrupted by selfishness, they hate it. And you say, well, why wouldn't they come in? For the same reason, if you had a loved one uh, back when the Branch Davidians had their compound in Waco and your loved one was a believer in David Korash and was inside um, that compound and put a little flag on the outside with your name on it and say, David Koresh has made my life wonderful. Come in and worship him with me. Are you going in? There's no chance. No chance at all. You see your loved one as much as you love them as deluded. Everyone outside that city will look at everybody inside the city just like that. They will not come in. And this is why he raises them. So that, because we don't, it's not a declaration. It's not simply, well, here are some record books. Read the records. We, uh, we can assure you, we keep accurate records here in heaven. There's no mistakes in our records. That's not how he wins. He wins by showing you that he didn't do anything to keep them out, and every single person who's lost are lost because they prefer to not exist than to be in the kingdom of God. That's how he wins, and that's why he brings them up again. So that's how I understand it. Does the Bible say anything about cremation? Uh, if it's okay to do since Jesus was buried, and he's our example, should Christians be buried also? I am unaware that the Bible says anything about cremation. Does anybody know? Uh, it's silent. Uh, I do know, though, if you value um, one of the founders of the Adventist Church, Ellen White, uh, she wrote specifically that nowhere in inspiration does the Bible say that the same particles of matter that made up your body now will be the particles of matter that make up your body when Jesus comes again. Uh, they, they, will, they will not be the same particles of matter. So in, in, in that, and, and I believe that's exactly true, because there were people who have not just been cremated. There were people who died when they were eaten by the great white sharks in the ocean and became uh, digestible protein for the uh, animal. Okay, well, what's going to happen to their body? It doesn't matter uh, because uh, it's not this body. When Jesus comes, this mortal gets erased and gets replaced with immortality. This corruption gets replaced with incorruption. The physical gets replaced. What doesn't get replaced is your identity and individuality. Who you are uh, is retained and you get a hardware upgrade. That's really cool. Do you think the global lockdown was the first surrounding of Jerusalem? Yes, I've said that a couple times in this class already. In my, my view, the global lockdown during COVID was analogous to the Roman army circling Jerusalem. And then they pulled back for a brief time to allow the righteous to flee. And what happened was a preamble to the next big final global lockdown that's coming. And it was a warning to all the righteous to, uh, you can't flee, you can't, can't flee geographically anymore because it's a worldwide event. And that's one of the reasons you know it's a worldwide event. Prior to what's happening in the world today, 
the righteous have been persecuted through all human history. They've been persecuted. You've seen the dark ages. They were persecuted. But, but there was always a space, a geographic place on earth prior to today where the righteous could flee and establish a new government of liberty. And the United States was ultimately the one talked about. When the United States fully betrays its trust and, and sides fully with the powers of the beastly system to coerce the consciences of people, there will be no place geographically people can flee to establish a new land of liberty. It won't, won't be available. So we can know we're in the last days. And so we are not to be fleeing geographically primarily. Our fleeing is spiritually, uh, psychologically, emotionally, that we are disconnecting, severing our heart's affections from organizations and systems that function like Babylon imperially authoritarian, top-down, coercively, and we align ourselves with movements and people of God who love others more than self. That is the fleeing so that we are prepared um, for the next big lockdown when it comes. How do you suggest people heal uh, from shame after being lured into unhealthy relationships with narcissists? Probably, if, if it's uh, as, as significant as the question suggests, you'll probably need a professional counselor. And in professional counseling, the focus will be on applying truth to separate your identity, individuality, and responsibility from the person who exploited and abused you. We are responsible for the decisions we make in governance yourself. We are not responsible for the decisions others make. In that process, there will be some pain, painful truths uncovered you will discover that, in fact, there were evidences and truths of the corruption of the person that you were in a relationship with long before you got out. And you will discover that you made choices to stay in that relationship longer than you needed to. And part of the healing process, if you want to get over it, will be to separate and ask the question, what was it about me that found this narcissist attractive in the first place? Why would I find someone with this depravity of character attractive to me. What is it about me that likes that? And through God's grace, change that about you. And as you change you, what you find attractive changes. This is hard work. It's painful work. It's uncomfortable work. It's healing work. And and at the same time, you will discover that those types of mistakes are not acts of sin, typically, they're acts of insecurity and fear. Acts of sin are when we actively use our powers to exploit, control, and hurt others. So you are more than likely, in this type of dynamic, the victim of somebody who is sinning against you. But the question would be, why did you collude and comply for so long? And I can tell you, lots and lots of patients have seen me over the years who colluded and complied with abusive and narcissistic husbands because their church told them to. He hasn't slept with another woman. It's a, we'll pray that he'll stop beating you. Unless he sleeps with another woman, you have no biblical grounds to leave. It doesn't matter that he verbally beats you down and calls you every name in the book. That doesn't matter. Because this is what happens when you have an, a, a rules-oriented understanding, an imperial Roman law, rather than a design law understanding. You have a design law understanding, you understand that adultery is betrayal. And marriage is giving your hearts in loyal love 
and devotion to each other to love, honor, and cherish. Marriage is not simply committing your genitals to one another, which is what the church suggests is all you really have to keep faithful in order to be a faithful spouse. It's a lie. No, you have to be faithful, not flawless, but the faithful spouse who makes a mistake is grieved in their heart that their mistake hurt their spouse and they repent and ask for forgiveness from their spouse and they strive to overcome that and become a more Christ-like spouse to their spouse. The narcissist, though, it's never their fault. You deserved it. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me, Lord. Hey, if she didn't do that, I wouldn't have done that. It's her fault, not mine. And there's always externalization, blame, and so forth and so on. And so... You need to do some serious counseling, look for the truth, truth in yourself, assign the responsibility for the mistreatment to the one who did the mistreatment, and look into your own heart and say, and what, what, what was my role in that, and why did I stay so long? Are mushrooms in an original creation of God? <laughs> why? They seem to require death or decay. I have no inspired resource that would indicate an answer to that question that comes up in my mental database. If any of you have any uh, inspired resource that would answer that question, share that with me, please. Um, What are the differences and similarities between imputed and parted righteousness? Functionally, there really is not much of a difference at all. If you read Ellen White widely, she actually uses them interchangeably. Uh, the penal legal people will make a big deal about this. Imputed righteousness is when you're declared to be righteous, even though you're not. And imparted righteousness is when God imparts righteousness to change you. It, it is actually uh, uh, that that description undermines the true power of both. Uh, my understanding of the imputed part is not a declaration of legal uh, uh, accounting and mechanistic books and ledgers in heaven. It is the attitude that God shows towards us, like the woman caught in adultery, and they brought him before Jesus. And Jesus uh, dispersed the crowd after writing the sins in the sand, and uh, he's with that uh, sin, cast for stone. And he says to her at this point, he looks down at her, and try to imagine the facial expression of Jesus looking at her. What do you think his expression was? You loser. You're kind of gross. Kind of get away from me. Disgust. What do you think his expression was? Deep compassion and love. Okay? And he says to her with the tone and voice, "Where, where are your accusers? Do you think it was love and gentle? Okay. His actions towards her at that moment are imputed righteousness. He's imputing to her righteousness that she doesn't yet possess, but he sees what she will be when she comes back to love and trust in him. It's very much like a doctor who sees a patient with a particular disease, but understands if you do this treatment, you will be well, and you can see past the disease to the wellness that they can have. So Jesus sees through the sin sickness to the virtue and righteousness we can possess if we trust him, and he treats us with that grace and with that love. That's in, he's imputing it to us. We haven't earned it. We haven't done it, and it's not legal. It's reality-based experiential. And then, because of the way he treated her so gently, she opened her heart and trusted him, and the Spirit imparted to her the righteousness and transformed her. You see the same thing in Adam and Eden after he sins, and Jesus calls out, Adam, where are you, buddy? Hey, man, we were going fishing this afternoon. He treats him gently, imputing to him mercy, grace, righteousness, seeing what he can be, opening, and so this is what, the Bible says, 
um, in Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. So the imputed attitude of God, treating us with love, grace, righteousness, wins us to repentance, then he imparts to us the virtues and righteousness of Christ. That's how I understand it. It's operational function. There's nothing legal going on at all. It may be necessary, uh, let's see. Okay, we're going to skip that. Um, Let's skip that. It says, during, this, uh, during your last Sabbath school, um, which I enjoyed immensely, you mentioned the division of 1888 as a representative of today's issues with the law. Can you give some statements from Jones and Wagner to clarify and contrast what you mean? Don't recall anything they mentioned uh, about God's wrath either. So, no, I don't actually have memorized Jones and Wagner's um, statements and comments, other than I would tell you it was summed up in the two books written by the two sides. One was written by Wagner, and one was written by G.I. Butler, who was the president of the general conference but was not in attendance because he was sick that weekend but he wrote a book in in the aftermath of it and butler's book was entitled the law in galatians and wagner's book was entitled um the gospel in galatians (laughs) okay and that sums up the difference of the two attitudes butler's group took the imperial law view and that god imposes law Uh, uh, wagner and jones and ellen white took the the gospels the good news about god and that the law was added and ellen white specifically says in the aftermath of this when the argument is over which law was added in galatians the ceremonial or the uh, or the moral law um uh, Butler took the position it was the ceremonial law. The moral law of Ten Commandments was always in existence, is the p- position he took. Ellen White later said, I'm asked concerning law in Galatians, which law was added? Um, both laws were added, but the uh, apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit was especially in Galatians speaking of the moral law that was added. And uh, so if you want more on this, I would recommend you go to, and get your pen if you're, if you're watching right now, and write this website down, P-I-N-E... K-N-O-L-L dot org. Pinenoll dot org. Pinenoll dot org. Go to the left of the, on the index. You'll see all of the recordings they have available. Click that. Scroll down about a third of the first page and you'll see 1888 is a ledger entry. Over the right says click here. It's a four or five lecture series given by Graham Maxwell, uh, back in 1975, I think it was. And it's, he goes through and he reads quote after quote after quote from both Ellen White and Wagner and Butler, and he does a fantastic job of walking you through the events that actually transpired, and even some of the diary entries from some of the people who attended it and, and recorded their experience of what happened there. So it's a great historical review of what happened there, and it will um, validate what I've suggested. I'm currently studying natural law and came across this as an introduction to natural law. Quote, natural laws are not God's commandments. Uh, Given free will choice, the very notion of a commandment is at once repressive and repulsive. Natural law is unavoidable. Every virtue has a consequence, and every trespass of virtue has a consequence. Fortunately, every man and woman have free choice to know in advance of any action exactly what potential outcome will result. Uh, our reasoning faculty and conscience exist for good for good reason, unquote. This feels a clumsy way of attempting to explain design law. However, can you please elaborate based on design law lens on the notion that many have that a commandment is repressive and repulsive? <laughs> it's okay. 
So can we, we, we comment on that? Um, yes. Can you command and expect good results by commanding people love you? I give you a new command. I command you to love me. And if you don't love me, I will punish you. Before that is the invitation to relationship. And that relationship is not just about me and God and us hanging out. It's about how his love can flow out to others. And so that's an invitation to just let him work through. So the commandment, i.e. concept, is referring to imperial law. Imperial law is repressive and repulsive. It is, God's kingdom does not work on it. It only operates in sinful environments. In heaven, there will be no imposed law. We will not be safe in heaven because God has posted the Ten Commandments on every street corner and has angels with flaming swords on every street corner, and he has a better surveillance system than the NSA. That is not why we'll be safe in heaven. We'll be safe in heaven because the law is written in your heart and mind as a method of operating that you love God and love others more than self. And every person in heaven would rather die than hurt another person. And we're all other-centered and for the best interest of other people. It would be an absolute safe place because everyone there has been transformed to be like we read about uh, Moses, that we w- he would give his life even for these horrible people, and everyone there will be like that. That's why it would be safe. And that you can't get by commanding it. The commandments were given as diagnostic instruments, and that's what Paul wrote to Timothy and said that the law is good if one uses it properly, but the law was not given for the righteous, it was given for the wicked, the murder, the slave trade, or the gossip, and so forth, because it diagnoses like an MRI of the soul. MRIs are not made for healthy people, they're made for sick people to reveal pathology, but MRIs do not fix anything. They only show what's wrong, and you go to the doctor to get the fix. The Ten Commandments reveal what's wrong with the soul till we go to Jesus, leads us to Christ, who gives us new heart and right spirit and fixes the brokenness in us. That's the reality. So I, I actually agree with the statement. What book of the Bible do you recommend starting first? The one you have the most interest in. Seriously. You will, you will find me when you seek for me with... It's the one you're interested in uh, is the one that you should start with first. And so if, you're actu- if you say there's no interest, well, and you just want to start with one, I think John is a great one to start with. I have an agnostic coworker that says an omniscient God can't exist. He firmly believes in free will. His premise is that if God truly for, had foreknowledge, then free will cannot exist. How would you answer this? This is a uh, open theism argument, whether he's agnostic or not. As many Christians, it's called open theism, and they make the same exact argument, and that's because they confuse foreknowledge with causality. As if, if God foreknows something, that means his knowledge causes it to happen. Uh, rather than God's, God lives outside of time, and how God knows it is because we choose it. What informs God that tomorrow you will have X, Y, and Z for lunch? What informs him of that? Does he foreknow it and therefore you're predestined? Do you have no freedom to, to eat what you want tomorrow? Or does he foreknow it because tomorrow at lunch you make the choice to eat that? See, his foreknowledge is not causality. If we had a, and I use this simple example, we had a time machine, and we went up and watched the next Super Bowl, and we watched the whole game, and we know every play, and we come back today, and we have that knowledge. Does our knowledge cause the, cause the athletes to, to, to perform out on the field, to, to p- call the plays they do, to make the interception or the touchdown that they make? No, our knowledge does not cause it. And that's, the, that's what many people confuse uh, foreknowledge with causality. I think I know where, I think I've read that one already. Yep, read that one. 
Please provide insight in the following Ellen White quote in the book, Call to Stand. The law of mutual dependence runs through all classes of society. That's law of mutual dependence is another way of saying the law of love. Every living system is dependent upon every other living system on planet Earth. We require the plants to give us oxygen. We, uh, we give back carbon dioxide. We, provide, we, we depend on the plants to give us food. We give back nitrates into the soil that allows the plants to, make, to grow that food. Uh, and on and on the, the circles of interdependence go. And so all living systems live on the, operative, on the law of love. And this is why the evolutionary theory is completely provable false, because it's not possible for any living organism to have arisen on its own in an atmosphere without the sustaining um, life energies and resources necessary from the ecosystems that we all interdepend upon. And so that's what she's describing there. I said, I found it very interesting that your comments today about SDA church leadership are often failing to follow God's leading were very similarly stated in a recent Fulcrum article uh, regarding the Autumn Council of 2017. Uh, no question there. First, this was one of your best classes. Well, thank you. Help us understand why, that, why others that search for truth can't break away from the Satan's lie about God. If anyone has a desire to seek the truth and has honesty and has honestly listened to both sides, why or how can you reject God's design law? Why is it so hard to get to let go uh, or relearn new truths? So um, that was a great question, and it has to do with um, what you said, if they really have a desire to seek truth. There are many people in religious organizations that are very secure in their ritualistic and uh, structured reli- uh, legal religious world. And, and they, are, they are not operating out of a heart that actually wants to advance in truth. They're operating from a position of assumed truth. We have the truth. We have the 28 pillars of truth that we've established. We have our creed, and this is the creed. And anything that doesn't agree with what we've established is false and, and heretical. And therefore, we don't have to ask questions. We can live secure in our bubble of, and, and we didn't even actually come up with it, uh, the, the Biblical Research Institute that came up with it. And, and, and if we ever have any questions that challenge it, we just send it off to them, and they send back the answer for us. And, and this, is, this is how many people, it gives, it's a sense of security. And for many people, I see this in, in outside of religion, in life. There are individuals in life that actually don't want to be independent and personally responsible for their life. They like the position of having somebody in their life to tell them what to do. I, I have patients like this. They really do. They don't want the pressure of being wrong. They don't want to make mistakes. So they let somebody else to tell them the answer, whether it's the church, and a lot of them it's the church, or whether it's a spouse, or whether it's some governmental leader or organization like the CDC. They let somebody else tell them the answer. And then if it's wrong, it's not my fault. I, mean, I, I'm just, I was just doing what I was told. Hey, 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 I was following the church. The church told me. And so they, they, it's, it's, a, it's a psychological mechanism to avoid any sense of responsibility but it's infantilizing, and it's contrary to God's design for the beings made in his image. It says the mature of those who develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong, Hebrews 5.14. We are to be responsible before God for our own individuality 
and the character that we have developed in response to the revelations of truth that God has given us. We can't turn that over to somebody else to tell us the answer. I gave this example, but I think it's an impactful one. Learning math. You can go to a class, and you want to be a really good student, and you never want to get get anything wrong, don't want to make any mistakes. So you ask the teacher before the exam if they will give you the answer key to all the questions. And you memorize the answer key. So when the test comes, you write down the right answer, and they, in fact, are the right answer to all the questions. Do you know how to do math? Well, you go to the church, and they give you the right answer to all the problems of the Bible, and here are the 28 answers that you need to memorize, and you memorize the 28 answers, and even if those answers are right, you still have no clue about how to problem solve in the real world with God's principles. You can't balance your own checkbook because you can't do math, and you can't balance your life because you can't make right and wrong decisions unless somebody tells you the answer. So a new problem comes along. It's not on the 28. What do you do? You have to run to the pastor. What's the answer? That is not what God wants for us. He wants us to understand reality, understand his principles, understand his design laws and how they function so we can apply them and that's what Jesus invited the disciples to be in John 15, 15. And I don't call you servants, rather I call you friends. Servants don't understand. They do what they're told. They follow the rules. Friends, I've, I've let you in on everything. I've told you everything that my father and I are doing. We understand. We agree. Let's see. It says, have you ever listened to the 1967 recording by Myron Fagan? Uh, much of what you say, uh, he said in 1967. No, I never have. Uh, I never have. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the way you run your kingdom. We ask that you will finish your work in our hearts and minds. Establish your living law in the spirit temple that you have given each of us that we can go out and be powerful representatives of your kingdom at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.